Thank you, Jonathan, and uh, thank you all for singing till I got here today, and uh, it's good to see every one of you here in worship this morning, and everybody on the live stream and TV as well. Now, let me tell you where I've been. I've been up in the uh, contemporary service today, because today uh, is sort of a bittersweet day, as we say goodbye to our contemporary worship pastor, Clay Scott, and his wife, Rachel. Uh, they've been with us for seven years, and on June 1st, joined our team seven years ago, helped us kick off and birth and lead to maturity our contemporary worship service, but now the Lord is leading them uh, to a new chapter in Birmingham, Alabama, actually, Chelsea, Alabama, just outside Birmingham, rapidly growing area, church over 100 years old, and really reaching out to a new young community with the gospel of Christ. And so we're sending them with our love and our blessing. And uh, I got a little long in the blessing and the prayer time up there. And so that's why I'm a little late uh, to this service today. Well, I'm so glad uh, that we can open the word together. And so let me invite you now, if you haven't uh, done so already, uh, to take your listening outline uh, from the, your worship guide, get a pen in hand, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 14. And this morning, I want to share a message entitled, do you see it on your outline? It, the message title is Truth from Long Ago to Guide Followers of Christ Today. Truth from Long Ago to Guide Followers of Christ Today. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to see a show of hands. I'd love to know how many of you have ever seen a Star Wars movie. Anybody here ever seen a Star Wars movie? Well, yeah. You know, in every service today, uh, you have proven what the stats say is true. Is This is one of the most popular franchises and movie making over the last several decades. I, I would say 90, 95% of uh, folks in this room uh, just raised their hands. And so, if you have seen at least one Star Wars movie, then you know uh, what happens at the beginning of every one of those movies. Do you know what happens at the beginning of every one of those movies? It starts with a sort of dark night sky with a few stars on it, and then there are a few words that appear in a simple script that begin to crawl across the screen. And it is the same sentence, the same words at the beginning of every one of those Star Wars movies. Do you know what it says? Some of you will, some of you may not. If you know it, you can say it out loud with me. Here's what the words say in that single sentence. The words say, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away right? So over the last few weeks, we've been reading through the book of Isaiah. And as we have, I've just been engaging with people in our church family and beyond about their read through the book of Isaiah. And in more than one way, guess what you have said to me? You've said, Pastor, I, I, I am reading that, but it seems like a long time ago and far, far away. 
And I'm not sure how it connects to me. Well, let me give you a couple of facts. May I? On, the, on your outline, write it in. Here's the first fact. The first fact is that Isaiah's ministry that we're reading about actually began in about 740 B.C. 740 B.C. That's 740 years before the time of Christ. So let's see where we are. We're in 2022. If you add 740 to that, that means that Isaiah's life and ministry occurred about 2,762 years ago. So it is true that it occurred long, long ago. Let me give you fact number two. Fact number two is the backdrop of Isaiah's ministry is the threat of a rising Assyrian empire. The threat of a rising Assyrian empire. Now, some of you will say, okay, I got it. I'm writing it in, but I don't know where Assyria is. So look, I put a map on your outline. I think they're putting it on the screen. And you can see where the kingdom of Assyria in the green there existed. It began near the Persian Gulf, the bottom right of the map. It made its way up the Tigris and Euphrates to its capital city of Nineveh, and then right on around the Fertile Crescent down into Syria, and then eventually stretched toward Israel and Judah and to Egypt. It would be the modern-day countries primarily of Iraq and southern Turkey and Syria and Israel and then down to Egypt. And so, guess what else is true? Uh, the story of Isaiah is not only a long time ago. It occurred in a place that is far, far away and probably seems very foreign to us. So the question then becomes, well, why? It's at the top of page two of your outline. The question becomes, so why should we make the investment or make the effort to read Old Testament books like Isaiah? Well, the Bible gives us three answers, and I want you to have them today because I want to encourage you to make the effort. Here's answer number one. Would you write it in? The Bible says that one of the reasons we ought to read the Old Testament is because all Scripture, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is profitable. It's beneficial. It's helpful. It's useful. God intends to use it to shape our lives. Now, some of you might say, well, Pastor Tim, where is that in the Bible? Well, it's in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. These words were written by the Apostle Paul. And I would love everybody here in the worship center, everybody on TV and online and in the contemporary worship service, let's just read this, this important passage, these two verses out loud that remind us of this truth. It begins, all scripture is breathed out. Are you ready? Let's read it together. Here we go. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so do you see the scripture says about the Old Testament, all of it, including the book of Isaiah, is profitable, it is useful, it's beneficial, it's helpful, and it's worth the investment to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Here's the second reason we ought to read a book like Isaiah. Write it in. It is that God uses the Old Testament scriptures to give us three things. Instruction, encouragement, and hope. The Bible says God will use the Old Testament scriptures to give us instruction, things that we don't know we will learn as we read and as we study. But it's more than just for our head. It's for our heart and it's for our spirit. God also uses the Old Testament scriptures to give us encouragement, to lift us up, to renew and refresh our spirits. And then out of that instruction and encouragement, the Bible says God uses the Old Testament to give us hope, hope as a confident, settled expectation about the future. You say, well, where is that, Pastor Tim? Well, it's in Romans 15, 4. Let me show you. It's on your outline. It says, for whatever was written in former days. Paul is referring principally there to the Old Testament scriptures. For whatever was written in former days was written, here it is, for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, why, why make the investment? Even though it's a long time ago, far, far away, takes a little more work to read and understand. Because it's all profitable. Because it will instruct us and encourage us and give us hope. And then, here's the third reason. Write it in. We read a book like Isaiah because it helps put our contemporary historical and cultural moment in better perspective. Better perspective. In other words, it helps us understand our moment, our time, our days. Why? Because now we have got a a longer look at who God is and how we're related to him and how he acts in the world. And that longer look gives us better perspective on our short lives and the contemporary cultural moment that we live in. Do you know what tomorrow is? Tomorrow is June 6th. Do you connect that? Do you connect June 6th to any important day in history? I hope you do. June 6th, 1944, during World War II, was the date of the Allied invasion of Normandy in France. It was the day that began the historic World War II battle to liberate continental Europe from Nazi control. And so tomorrow, 78 years ago, uh, tomorrow, uh, we will mark that significant date in history. 
Back on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, several of the major TV networks had anniversary programs that inter uh, included some interviews with some of the aging veterans who had actually been there at D-Day. Uh, you may have seen uh, programs like this across the years. They're usually very fascinating because they ask questions of people who were actually there and experienced these historical events. One of those TV programs paired two contrasting interviews back to back. The first interview was with a Marine who had landed on Omaha Beach. And as they spoke with this Marine, he recalled horrors, literal horrors that occurred in the battles on that beach that sounded like, and for, for modern day uh, folk, uh, it, it would sound like to us scenes from Steven Spielberg's Academy Award winning movie, maybe Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen it. And this aging veteran recalling the day he was on Omaha Beach, recalled looking around at the bloody casualties around him, and you know what his perspective was? You know what his conclusion was? He said to himself, we're gonna lose. We're gonna lose. The very next interview in the TV program was an interview with a U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance pilot who at the very same moment the Marine was on Omaha Beach, this reconnaissance pilot was flying over the whole battle area. And he could see from his vantage point, yes, he could see the carnage on the beaches and the hills but he could also see the successes of the Marines. He could see the penetration by the paratroopers. He could see the effectiveness of the aerial bombardment. And at exactly the same moment, the guy on the beach was saying, we're gonna lose. Guess what the guy up in the sky was saying to himself? He was saying, we're gonna win. We're going to win. And what was the difference? The difference was perspective. Now watch this. Sometimes when we're captured in our moment and all of the challenge and travail and sinfulness and brokenness around us, guess what we're tempted to say? We're going to lose. But when we back away and read a book like Isaiah that gives us a big sweep of what God is doing in human history, every person who is in Christ will say, we're gonna win, we're gonna win. Our sovereign God is on the throne and his purposes will be accomplished. So, with that bit of intro, and so by the way, if you're not reading with us, boy, I hope you will. Text the word chapter to 22828, sign up with your email address, and you'll be able to, to join in as we read through Isaiah. It'll be worth it. 
So in our moments remaining today, let me tell you what I want to do. I want to I want to look over the first 20 chapters that we've read together and I want to highlight five of the biggest truths. Are you ready? You got your pen in hand? Write them in. Here's number 1. When you read through Isaiah as we're doing, uh, the first thing you see is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And he says through Isaiah that his purposes will be accomplished. God is sovereign and his purposes will be accomplished. It means he's on the throne, he's in control, and what he intends to happen will happen. Now, you just can't miss that theme as you read through Isaiah. Let me give you just one place where the scripture says that. It's in Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 24. Look at it. It says, the Lord of hosts has sworn. This is what God says. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This, the Lord says, is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Oh, this, this is just one of the many places where Isaiah reminds us God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He's in control. He is good. He is wise. And his plans are best. And his purposes will be accomplished in our lives. Now, you know when... When things are going well, it's typically easy to affirm that truth. But you know when it's hardest? It's when there's disappointment, when there's heartache, when there's suffering, when the dream doesn't come true, when something happens you can't understand. And so let's apply this truth to our lives really personally today. And let me just say that if you are walking through a season like that, I want to encourage you even when your head doesn't understand. Because oftentimes God does not reveal to us in advance or even in the moment. It is only looking back that we can begin in this life to see God's purposes unfolding. But in eternity, we will see that our sovereign God was wise and true and good, and we can trust his plan. And you might say, well, what is God doing in my life during times of suffering? Well, let me just remind you of a couple of verses from the book of James. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I can't speak to the specific circumstances of your life, but I can tell you what the truth of Scripture is. 
when our sovereign God brings suffering to our lives, he's often doing one of several things. He may be getting our attention. He may be calling us to repent. He may be leading us to change. He may be redirecting our path. He may be purging from us a priority that we ought not have. He may be removing or replacing a key relationship. He might be developing our character or deepening our understanding or refining our faith or growing us to maturity in Christ. Don't you see? God is sovereign. God is good. God is wise. His purposes will be accomplished in our lives even during times of suffering. It's one of the big truths of the book of Isaiah I hope we can internalize. Let me give you the second one. Here it is. The second big truth is that God's judgment, God's judgment will come upon the unrepentant who refuse to submit to his authority, who refuse to love him, who refuse to worship him, who refuse to live by his ways. You know, the principal genre in the first several chapters of the book of Isaiah is the form of an oracle. If you've been reading, you've seen, seen that word again and again. An oracle is a message, it's a pronouncement, it's a prediction, often of judgment that God is going to bring on a particular people. So as you've been reading with me through the first 20 chapters of Isaiah, you've seen an oracle against Assyria, an oracle against Babylon, an, or an oracle against uh, the Philistines, an oracle against the Moabites, against the Edomites, against the Cushites, against the Egyptians, against Israel, against Judah, against Jerusalem. I mean, there's oracle after oracle. And guess what the main theme of them all is? God will bring judgment on the unrepentant wicked. Let me give you an example. Look in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It's destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They'll be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They'll be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. And then look at verse 9. It says, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. Perhaps this is the reason why we say, oh, Isaiah's just too hard. I'm not going to read it. It could be because one of the big themes reminds us of God's holiness and of his righteous judgment upon sin. Personally, and in nations. And that's sobering. That's sobering for us. And what should it cause us to do? 
it should cause us to say, oh Lord, I don't want to be among the unrepentant. I don't want to be among those who stubbornly disobey you. I don't want to be among those who receive your judgment. Oh no, Lord, search me and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. Cleanse me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh God, if you will show me my sin, I will turn from it. I'll repent of it. I'll confess it. I will walk in your ways. You see, if you read Isaiah, you can't miss. God is sovereign. His purposes will be accomplished. And God's judgment will come upon the unrepentant. There's one more truth here that sort of goes along with this. It's number three, write it in. If you've been reading with me, you couldn't miss that over and over again, Isaiah says, pride, pride, both personal and national, is singled out as especially offensive to God. Now, the first time we see this explicitly stated is in Isaiah 2.11. Look at it. It says, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It occurs again and again. Let me show you just one other reference. Look in chapter 13, verse 11. God says, I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And so what is Isaiah highlighting? He's saying that perhaps the sin that most offends the majesty and honor of God is when we lift our selves up in pride before him that essentially says, I don't need you, oh God. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud and he will bring his judgment on the unrepentant. That's true for nations that's true for people. And whenever we take pride, whenever we celebrate, whenever we take pride in what God says we should be ashamed of and repent of, you can know that his judgment is on the way. Isaiah sobers us with his words, does he not? Well, I'm so thankful that that's not the end of Isaiah's message. Look on your last page of your outline. Here's his number four. Right alongside these words of sovereignty and judgment and against pride, here it is, right alongside, God promises to send his Messiah, his rescuer, his deliverer, his savior, 
To do what? To rule, to reign, to punish the wicked and to gather his people. And, and there are many of these messianic predictions, but perhaps the most famous one is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 11. Or 6 and 7. Are you, are you still with me? If you are still with me, will you read aloud with me these beautiful verses? Let's read them aloud together. Are you ready? Here we go. It begins, for to us a child is born. Here we go. Ready? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And can't you just hear the majestic melodies that George Friedrich Handel wrote to accompany this text? So what does God say? He says, I'm sovereign. I'll bring judgment on the unrepentant, especially their pride. But here's the way of salvation. The way of salvation is in the Messiah. And he will rule with justice and righteousness and faithfulness. And we know who that Messiah is. That Messiah is Jesus. And uh, the Lord did send him. And he lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again and ascended to the Father. And one day is coming again. And so that leads us to the last truth today from Isaiah and that is number five, write it in, until Jesus comes again. Until Jesus comes again, God says that he will preserve and protect a remnant, a remnant of his faithful people who will eventually be gathered from every nation. Now, what's a remnant? If, if you have a a big set of something, the remnant is a subset of the larger set. The remnant is what is left after the larger set has been dispersed. The remnant are the faithful people of God who remain committed to him. Let me see if I can show you just one reference to that. In Isaiah eleven eleven. it says, in that day... The Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. There it is. That remains of his people. And where are his people going to come from? This is breathtaking. He says, I still have people who are in Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. It, it's Isaiah's foreshadowing of the revelation vision that said God's remnant People who love him and trust him and know him and follow him will come from every people, every tribe, every tongue and be gathered around him. Look at verse 12. And he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so what is the Lord saying to us? 
This is God's word for us today, church family. God is saying, I know you are living in a cultural moment when in your country and in Western civilization, many nations and peoples are walking away from their traditional commitments to a Judeo-Christian worldview. It's just a fact. Secularization is increasing and the tide of faith in so many places is at an ebb flow. And so what does God say to us? He says, I'm sovereign. I'm going to judge the unrepentant wicked, especially their pride. But I have sent a Savior who rescues all who will repent and believe. And until I come, I want my church to be a faithful remnant, faithful to me until I come and gather them to myself. That's the Lord's word for us today the reason why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eleven five. so too he says at the present time there's a remnant a remnant chosen by grace I read this week a piece that just captured my imagination it attempted to describe the places we've walked over the last two years. And you know, I know for a lot of us, beginning in 2020 and much of 2021, it was like, this is a global nightmare. We just hope it'll pass quickly. We hope it'll soon be forgotten. We're just gonna call it a mulligan year and try again and begin anew. But this writer said, you know, that's probably a faulty view of the last two years. Because he says, when you look back across human history, these kinds of circumstances have been the norm rather than the exception. He says, you know, the global pandemic, gross injustices, racial tensions, mad riots, macabre political theater, he listed all. And he says, for those of us who read the Bible, that ought not be a surprise. And then I I smiled when I heard the way he concluded that. He said, these years just happened to be, quote, a rather colorful sampling of our commonly shared low anthropology. I thought, yep, that's about right. But then you know what he said, and I loved it. He said, if we read the Bible and understand its truth, we will say, but we are not the church of Chicken Little. And I said, that's right. We are not the church of Chicken Little, but we're the church of Jesus Christ. So we don't run around screaming that the sky is falling. Why? Because there's no panic in heaven. Over the chaos of this world reigns the King of Kings, Jesus the resurrected, before whom 
every knee will eventually bow, whether they like it or not. Every governmental authority now, presidents, kings, prime ministers, you name it, they're all in lame duck administrations. Their time is ending. So don't put your trust in politicians, parties, ballot boxes, as important as all that is. Why? Because Christ and his kingdom are everlasting and into that kingdom he calls us to find forgiveness and life and peace and joy. Oh man. And so based on the rich, deep truths that we're learning from Isaiah, can we just not agree today that we shall not be the church of Chicken Little, but instead by God's grace, we will be a faithful, joyful, expectant, believing remnant the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. Now, I've just got to say, if you don't know how to be a part of that remnant, it's by grace through faith, turning from your sin, trusting Christ, following him, becoming a part of his people. And he'll give us grace to do that for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you today so much for this rich, deep, strong truth from long ago and far away. For those of us who follow you today, so encourage us strengthen us, protect us, and help us live as the remnant church of Jesus Christ until the day you come again, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.